0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 167th consecutive episode, and I hope when you have a moment, you will visit www.patreon.com slash revolutionz. That's www.patreon.com slash revolutionz, because there you can leave a message, and should you choose to, you can make a donation to help us out. You can also write me directly at sysop, S-Y-S-O-P, that's like system operator, S-Y-S-O-P, at zmag.org. And you can visit Znet as well to access past episodes of Revolution Z, which are almost all not time-bound, but actually just as timely now as when they were first produced. Our episode today, though, is the second in our new sequence that's titled Transition, It's a bit unusual, the sequence, in being a kind of exploration of a work in process, really a work just getting going, about transitioning from current economic relations to new post-capitalist economic relations of a sort we prefer. Thus, today's title is Where From? And it is a draft of what might become, after corrections, refinements, etc., including, hopefully, from people hearing this, the first chapter of a book titled Transition to a New Economy for a Better World. I will present it to you here today with hopes you will convey back reactions that can improve it. I will also interject some thoughts, ruminations, in Revolution Z parlance as we proceed, interjections that would not appear in the actual chapter itself. So, the proposed possible, maybe it will happen, draft chapter starts out. Let's not spend overly long on recounting what we daily suffer. On the one hand, we live amidst incredibly profound potential. On the other hand, we live amidst unfathomably frustrating failure. Positively, we have traveled an amazing multi-millennial journey, from some kind of chemical goulash to emergent complex molecules to outrageously unlikely single cells, to impossibly varied tiny living organisms, to all matter of incredibly complex creatures, to us. And then, to tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of years of us proceeding via human history. After all that, we can see things that are minuscule. We can build sites to the skies. We can salvage from the ground. We can comprehend innards. We can create complexity. We can know our past, we can construct our present, we can even envision our future. And yet, on the other hand, year after year, we travel from hospital birth to home childhood to school learning to work drudgery. And I can't help but interject here an excerpt from Dylan, who pops into my overly-aged mind quite regularly. It goes like this. Ah, get born, keep warm, short-pants romance. Learn to dance, get dressed, get blessed, try to be a success. Please her, please him, don't steal, don't lift. 20 years of schooling, and they put you on the day shift. He says it well, doesn't he? The lyric is from Subterranean Homesick Blues. And getting back on track, the draft chapter continues. After millennia of developments, to merely survive our inherited life journey is somehow deemed an achievement. Hold a job? Success. Earn more? Bigger success. Hide or ignore pain, to suffer in silence. Maturity. Lie, cheat, and master hypocrisy. Wisdom. Say have a nice day and ignore or literally obstruct nearly everything that could truly advance nice days for all. Friendliness. Passively watch poverty proliferate. Mellowness. Retain optimism while temperatures surge. Sophistication. Trample thinking to believe comforting nonsense. Brilliance. Avoid taking sides to dodge conflict, sagacity. Sublimate caring to advance self, ascendancy. Is upside-down living life and life only? And I interject, yes, life and life only, that's from him again. So do yourself a favor. Better than the draft of where from is Dylan's recounting of same. Try, for example, It's Alright Ma, or Maggie's Farm. But again, back to the draft of Chapter 1, which continues. Examine any 10 million personal trajectories in any society. From the poor many to the rich few, you will find some fulfillment, some creation, some respect, some dignity, some love, and even some honesty. But all of that bucks the odds. You will also find incredible impoverishment, boredom, dismissal, denial, depression, indignity, hypocrisy, and hate. And all of that reflects the odds. Is this our human condition? life and life only? Well, yes, this is today's human condition. It is today's odds. But is this our human condition? Well, no. This is not wired into human nature. This does not have to be. It is only today's odds. That is this book's premise. We can change future odds. We can get born differently. But if our inherited condition isn't wired in, From where does the violence, impoverishment, denigration, and deprivation of daily life derive? We are so knowledgeable, so skilled, so connected. So how do we arrive at war, poverty, alienation, division, denigration, and even collective ecological suicide? How do we wind up accepting and even abetting our own devastation? The answer, which is another premise of this book, is that humanity's suffering is overwhelmingly not biological. Bad backs are biological. Bad karma is social. The horrible litany of societal ills that now verges on suicidal catastrophe does not inexorably flow from our genes. Our societal ills instead overwhelmingly owe to our institutions. To do better, to have better, to live better, to be better, we don't have to change our internal genetic makeup. To do better, to have better, to live better, to be better, we do have to change the world we inhabit. We have to change the institutions we torturously navigate throughout our lives, the institutions that bend, fold, spindle, and mutilate our greater beings. Interjecting. That's borrowed from an early outburst of the 60s, rebelling against the onrushing defilement of humans as little more than something you invest in. Whoops, that's him again. Back to the possible chapter which continues. Oppression-producing institutions are social constructions. They accomplish certain social functions, and it is true that a subset of those functions do, indeed, spring from who we are in our biology. But how institutions accomplish those essential functions is another matter entirely. That aspect is not inevitable. That aspect is not unchangeable. What functions spring from our very natures? procreation, nurturance, socialization, and training, producing, consuming, and allocating, adjudicating, legislating, and implementing, celebrating, and communicating. We don't accomplish all those, we die. We are not rocks or trees, we are people. And yes, lots of what we are is wired in. And most institutions affect all those basic functions. But some institutions define and determine some of those tasks more than they do others. Societies have polities, cultures, kinship relations, and economies. Each of these spheres of life prioritizes particular functions having to do respectively with political tasks, communicative and celebratory tasks, nurturant and daily life tasks, and production, consumption, and allocation tasks. Each of these spheres of social life facilitates and limits various life possibilities. Each affects and intersects with defines and is defined by the others. In today's world, each allows life for most, but each also curtails life's potentials for all. Life debased. If we are to escape authoritarian, racial, sexual, and economic division and domination that debases our lives, all our defining institutions need renovation. Life liberated. This book overwhelmingly addresses economy. So in this chapter, we describe current economy. But economy is not more important than the rest. Economy just happens to be our focus in this particular discussion of transition, or, more accurately, in this particular discussion of mainly one dimension of transition. Our economy is capitalist. So, too, are most economies in the world. The few that aren't, we can tentatively call coordinatorist. Each of these two types of economy exists in real-life societies, with many factors that differentiate one instance of each from another instance of each, and the two broad types from each other. Factors that differentiate include, for example, levels of development, size of population, history as colonizer or colonized, climate, and resources. These attributes differ from one country's economy to another country's economy. Differentiations also arise because in any given society, economies always accompanies And is accompanied by political, cultural, and kin relations, which also differ from society to society, and which in turn differently mold economy from society to society, sometimes highly dramatically. South Africa's capitalism of apartheid days differed from Swedish capitalism during the same period, for example. Still, even with all the room for differences between instances of capitalism or of coordinatorism, such as the old Soviet Union and Cuba, for example, there are some striking commonalities. Capitalism always includes private ownership of the means of production. In the United States, roughly 2% of the population own the workplaces and resources necessary to produce what society then consumes. They are capitalists, and even the 2% estimate misleads since among the owners, a still smaller subset owns most productive assets. In capitalism, whatever their proportion in one country or another, the few owners of productive property decide on or hire others to help decide on what society's productive capacity produces by what steps. Workplaces produce. Output is dispersed and consumed. We call the economy's total output its social product. Capitalism arrives at how much is produced by whom and how much is consumed by whom largely by way of either market competition between countless buyers and sellers who each act without much coercive imposition by the rest, or via central directives that countless producers and consumers implement, obeying instructions from the few who plan and administer. Beyond private ownership of productive assets, that is, capitalism also typically has competitive markets and, in its modern form, also, at least within large productive units, elements of central planning. Another typical and indeed virtually universal capitalist feature is what we can reasonably call a corporate division of labor. All divisions of labor take all the tasks done in workplaces and apportion them into jobs that people fulfill. The corporate division does that in its own particular way. One category of jobs, roughly 20% of the total, combine mainly empowering tasks, doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants, managers, and so on. The other 80% of jobs combine mainly disempowering tasks, assemblers, short-order cooks, deliverers, ushers, and so on. Empowering tasks are those that convey skills, information, connections to others, and even confidence, which together empower the employee doing those tasks. Disempowering tasks are those that reduce skills, knowledge, connections to others, and even confidence, which together disempower the employees doing the tasks. In this book, we call empowered employees coordinators. We call disempowered employees workers. Coordinators share empowered interests and capacities with other coordinators. Workers share disempowered interests and capacities with other workers. Coordinators' interests and capacities, and workers' interests and capacities are at odds with one another. Empowered coordinators dominate disempowered workers. In capitalism, coordinators are in turn dominated by owners—between labor and capital, the coordinator class. So why do we so despise these various features of capitalism that we want to replace capitalism's defining institutions with new, better ones? It is because capitalism's defining institutions accomplish production, allocation, and consumption in ways that limit and subjugate us. First, private ownership puts a few in charge of many. The owners not only accrue profits based on property, but also determine the use of property. Bezos determines policy for literally hundreds of thousands of working-class employees of Amazon. He accrues incredible wealth on top of being a veritable dictator of Amazon. Private ownership leads to the division of society and to employers who own means of production and employees who do not own means of production. It establishes that the latter must sell their ability to work to the former. It ensures gargantuan differences in income, wealth, and influence. It ensures class division and class rule. For some to privately own workplaces and resources, in some demolishes equity and even minimal democratic participation. Next, capitalism's corporate division of labor elevates about one-fifth of employees above the other four-fifths. We don't have only owners and a homogenous collectivity of non-owning employees. We have owners, empowered employees, called coordinators, and disempowered employees, called workers. The basis of this divide among employees is that by virtue of the tasks they do, one-fifth of employees experience empowering situations and have prior training to give orders have a high degree of access to decisions, have ample connection to others, have elevated knowledge and skills, and have inclination and energy essential for decision-making. The other four-fifths of employees have, by virtue of the tasks they do, disempowering situations, and a degree of separation from decisions, disconnection from others, diminution of knowledge and skills, and lack of inclination and energy essential for decision-making. And this makes capitalism a three-class and not a two-class system. Here I should interject that above we have a familiar approach to thinking about economy and capitalism, rooted in paying overwhelming attention to ownership relations, and then also, as an addition to that, and not as a replacement for it, we add an unfamiliar approach to thinking about economy and capitalism, rooted in paying equivalent attention to work relations and the distribution of empowering circumstances. But to continue, the draft chapter goes on to say, Finally, capitalism's markets create a competitive dynamic in which to be nice is a debit, and to be antisocial and even cruel is an advantage. Markets, capitalist or coordinator, produce a drive to accumulate, to amass profits or surplus, and to fleece others whenever the opportunity arises. You accumulate or you lose. Markets reward bargaining power. You take or you get taken. Markets ignore effects of transactions beyond the buyer and seller, which are called externalities, and which include the ecological implications of production and consumption. You dump or you get dumped on. A resulting irony is that markets, celebrated as almost magical information machines, in fact mistake virtually everything they put a price on, so that choices based on misvaluations in turn produce outcomes based on misvaluations. Markets orient choice toward individual and not collective benefit. Markets advance the most powerful. Markets distort the information used to arrive at decisions. Markets pervert personalities. Inequality thrives. Ecology dies. Bad as this portrait of capitalism reveals it to be, full disclosure requires that we acknowledge that specific capitalisms can be better or worse. On the one hand, they may be coupled to a particularly authoritarian polity racist culture, or sexist kinship arrangement that intersects capitalist economy and makes it still more perverse, just as capitalist economy intercepts and can make polity, culture, and kinship more perverse. Also, markets can include different amendments on top of the above-mentioned defining features, and such amendments can seek to reduce their vile effects, or sometimes even to exacerbate them. Laws and taxes may aim at reducing or enlarging the wealth of owners or of coordinators relative to workers. Likewise, laws can limit or enlarge the prerogatives of owners, for example, minimum wage laws or length of the workday and workweek laws. Rules of employment, and for that matter, full employment policies, can reduce exploitation. Environmental regulations, health requirements, educational norms, and many more rules and practices can be laid upon private ownership upon markets, and upon the corporate division of labor, to yield somewhat different starting points from which struggle against existing economies and later transition from them begins. Such oppression-reducing or oppression-enlarging variations overwhelmingly reflect gains won by workers against those above, or vice versa, and also gains won by coordinators against those above or below, or vice versa. Such amendments to basic capitalist operations reflect different levels of bargaining power for the different classes in society. Yet, even so, the basics persist, inexorably at the core of capitalism. And here I interject. The fact that there can be improvements within capitalism, and how we relate to these, will play a role in our thinking as we proceed. But, in Chapter 1, we just continue by continuing with the chapter, which notes that Earlier, we mentioned that some countries don't have capitalism, but instead what we call coordinatorism. What is that? Coordinator economies eliminate private ownership of productive assets. Capitalists no longer decide economic outcomes. Capitalists no longer accrue profits. Capitalists no longer exist. That is a change that is more than sufficient to warrant recognizing that these are a different category of economy. It isn't just their polities that have altered. However, coordinator economies also embody major continuities with what we now know in capitalism. The corporate division of labor and markets, or central planning, persists. There are no longer profits, but there are still surpluses, and there is still income for bargaining power. The difference from capitalism is perhaps best summarized by noting that instead of capitalists above coordinators above workers, now there are coordinators above workers, but no capitalists anywhere in the mix. This type of economy that combines state or public ownership, plus a corporate division of labor, plus markets and or central planning, has often called itself, or been called, for example, in the old Soviet Union, state capitalist, socialist, state socialist, bureaucratic socialist, or 20th century socialist. But we here choose to call it coordinatorism, after the class that rises to ruling economic status in it. These coordinator economies, like capitalist economies, can be better or worse due to entwined better or worse kinship, culture, or polity, and also due to the working class having more or less power with which to defend itself against coordinator class dominance. And with that observation, we complete this very brief survey of some attributes of the economies we hope to transition away from. Survey is very brief because we assume that readers of a book titled Transition, and subtitles from capitalism to participatory socialism, are familiar with the system they desire to escape. So that is it. What do you think? Am I on strong footing, feeling that the above is sufficient for readers of a book on transition, or do I need double, triple, or ten times the above about the innards and the the failures of capitalism before moving to the next chapter, to be titled Where To? That asked. This is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.